Hello, this is just Kevin for now, but don't worry. Uh, we've got a very special guest shared secret, um, which is uh, not because I've run out of secrets entirely yet, but because uh, this person uh, has always has some great insight and really wanted to uh, open up this kind of like alternative format because eventually I for sure will run out of secrets at least for a little bit. And uh, this is a great way to, uh, I think, bring in some some great outside perspectives. So, uh, and Dennis will will join that segment in a second as well. So don't worry for all you Dennis heads out there. He'll be on in a second. Um, this week's guest is Caroline Wong. So I met Caroline back in 2008 at eBay, where I was a consulting architect on their next generation firewall deployment, which was a very cool gig to, to land as a consultant. And her job was at the time to make sure that not only did we come up with the right answers, but that we could also back those answers up with the right metrics and measures that would prove that our theories uh, were correct. And that's a lesson that has really helped me in my own career. Um, so since then, she's gone on to author an amazing book on that subject called Security Metrics, A Beginner's Guide. I highly recommend that. Um, and she's also been a security leader at Zynga, Symantec, uh, and, countless other f and helped countless other firms with their software security initiatives as a consultant with Sigital, where I was lucky enough to cross paths and get to work with her again. Um, most recently, she has been leading the strategy, people, and security teams at Cobalt. So thank you so much, Caroline, for uh, hopping on the podcast and sharing this uh, upcoming secret. And uh, thank you to the audience as well for tuning in uh, to this week's episode. Talk to you soon. All right, Dennis. How's it going, Kev. bud? I'm doing well. We, How are you? Uh, I'm good. We've officially run out of secrets. There's no more secrets. Well, there's no more secrets be from me. And you claim to never have any secrets. <laughs> so I've, I've already I've already shared my most interesting uh uh story on the show and like I said before it barely involves me so yeah I think uh, I'm good you've exhausted all of the interesting parts about me yes so but you're not my only friend you're close to being my only friend <laughs> <laughs> but I have one more friend and her name is Caroline Wong and she has a secret hooray here Caroline. I am I don't Yay. usually tell my secrets to people in public forums but i have to make exceptions for people whom i've participated in human pyramids in las vegas at 3 a.m with <laughs> also there's a strong argument to be made that this is not a public forum based on our viewership <laughs> <laughs> so, so feel Every free to like really get personal on the crowd somewhere <laughs> <laughs> all cool. right but let's let's uh let's not delay anymore caroline uh you have you have something yeah jumping right into it here mm -hmm. is my crazy secret the security industry does not have a talent shortage wow oh okay i'd love um, to i want to be excited about this I'm a little scared because I have been using this idea of like 3.5 mil missing cybersecurity jobs to like try to get the limited amount of listenership that we have, <laughs> like really, ta really targeting those markets and and, uh, and people trying to get into uh, to cybersecurity. So, so yeah, what? So 
tell us it, you don't you don't believe there's I mean is that the number that you've heard as well is like 3.5 million yeah I mean they're big numbers I too have ref- have referenced these numbers for a variety of different purposes I also don't think that there is not a problem in cybersecurity when it comes to talent I think that was accurate use of a double negative I just don't think there's a talent shortage I actually think we have a control and a distribution problem. So, um, for example, um, and for fun, I'll say that this is a hypothetical example. My hypothetical example is that imagine if we were in the midst of a global pandemic and there was an infectious and deadly disease that was, I don't know, killing upwards of half a million people in the richest country of, of, of the world. Um, Seems hyper- far-fetched, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah really I far-fetched. I think I've seen a movie like this once before. But just, 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 <laughs> just stay with me for kicks. Give me the benefit of the doubt here. Um, you know, one might say, oh, uh, what we need is a vaccine. You know, and what we need is enough vaccines. Um, sure, okay. You know, I think that hypothetically... There are probably very good scientists, lots of them, who can come up with, with a vaccine or two or three or maybe a hundred in like runner-ups. Um, but then actually, the real-life problem that the world would have to solve in a hypothetical situation like this would actually be who controls those vaccines and how do they get effectively distributed? So mm. using this as a metaphor... I actually think that the world has security talent, but that our model for control and distribution of security talent is broken. Mm. But is that not a free market? I mean, in mo- I mean, it's not a free market in the entire. I mean, if we zoom in on on the the U.S. or you know Western uh, world, people get to choose where they go work, right? Do they? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so super fun, right? Uh, and um, we've joked a couple of times leading up to this podcast recording that um, maybe it's a little boring if the three of us get onto Zencaster and we all say the same thing. Um, so, personally, kind of excited to be here uh, bringing something a little controversial to the table. Um, I would say that historically, for a technical security person, there have been, broadly speaking, two job options. Job option one, you go and work internally uh, for a security company. Maybe you become a pen tester on some company's internal security team. Mm -hmm. Option two, uh, you go and you work as a consultant um, from the organization point of view, the options, if someone needs a technical security person is either to try and hire someone full time, which can be hard to do because uh, people who have these skills already have jobs. Uh, people who have these skills are probably paid fairly well Um, And so the task for a hiring manager is not to convince someone on the market to join their team. It's to actually 
poach someone from an existing job. Mm-hmm. The alternative, of course, is you go to your local security consulting firm and you say, hey, uh, I need such and such type of project. The consulting firm says, sure, we can do that for you. You know, We'll write up a custom statement of work. We'll charge you hourly. Um, and because all of our consultants are really busy, we can get started in somewhere between two and six weeks. Um, this, I think, is broken. And actually, uh, one of the things is that we're not making the most use of the cybersecurity professionals that are available. I also think we have a problem when it comes to evaluating technical talent. I don't think that today we have the right sort of technical talent evaluation or certification methodology Mm -hmm. that would allow us to actually leverage the security talent that I think is available. Do you make any distinction when you're talking about uh, security consultants between folks working for big security firms and more of like the mercenary I'm a consulting consultant of one, right? Like I'm just an independent security consultant. That's a really good question. Uh, broadly in this model, I consider them to be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, either way, uh, you've got control of the talent, whether it be control over one resource or control over 100 resources. Um, and, and then the distribution occurs uh, with what's typically somewhat of a lengthy and cu- uh, certainly customized uh, procurement process between the entity that controls the talent uh, and the one that that needs it distributed to. Yeah, yeah. So- just asking, yeah, because I just feel like I've definitely had friends that work for a company, and then when it's time, it's like, okay, fifty percent seem to be like, okay, I'm going to join this big firm, and the other are like, you know what, nah, I'm going to just like go out on my own. So mm-hmm. I was, wasn't sure how this impacts. I mean, I, I, I want Caroline to, to, to get a little bit more concrete here because as I understand her argument, it's Dennis's fault because <laughs> Dennis, <laughs> Dennis goes and he hires up every person who's going to graduate from a and who's going to be, you know, who is interested in security. He's sometime, he's some, in some way able to attract the talent because it's, it's, maybe more exciting for somebody as their first job to, to work. Maybe they can pay better, but there's whatever the market is. We dominate the entry point to that market as a consulting firm, which, you know, this is not a work podcast, but Dennis and I both happen (laughs) to work for consulting firms. Um, And then don't let those people go back into enterprises to make those types of impacts. We want to do that because then people have to come and buy additional capacity from consulting. Is that the high level? That's correct. That's correct. Okay. And I and I recognize, you know, I thought about this last night. You too work for consulting firms. I used to work for a consulting firm. I don't think that there's anything bad with the consulting firms or anything bad about the folks who work for those consulting firms. I think that the model has control and distribution issues when it comes mm-hmm. to trying to solve the world's cybersecurity problems. What if there were a way to match talent to needs mm-hmm. on demand? I don't think we have that yet. And I think what if there were a way to effectively evaluate technical security talent uh, in a scalable way. I also don't think the industry has that yet. And and in the meantime, 
I think we have this control and distribution situation, which I think the problem, in my view, is often inaccurately posed as there's a security talent gap. We need this many people doing these things, but we only have way fewer people. I don't actually think that's the case. I think we have a matching problem. I think we have a control and a distribution problem such that Mm -hmm. there are folks who have access to that talent and there are folks who do not. Mm -hmm. So if it's a I mean, would you do you challenge the notion that it's somewhat of a free market right now? Which I mean, you you work for a firm that is that is actually solving a different problem using a market, right? You're you're the the economic the the economics perspective of a market to say, hey, we've got this gap, you know, we've got supply, we've got demand, and connecting in in a different way. So you're you're kind of proposing that we intelligently create some some market to better align these folks, like. Like maybe the the model is uh, similar to like how medical residents do their matching, if people are familiar with that or something like that. Yeah, I think that there's the possibility in the future of a model where technical security talent can become evaluated in a scalable way. And then once they are evaluated, they can choose and be matched to projects where their skills are needed and that those, the organizations that need those projects to be done can actually procure those evaluated technical security talent resources in a way that's reasonable and not Mm -hmm. sort of only available to the richest for-profit companies on the planet. So is this, is Nirvana here like bringing the gig economy to security? So I think there's a difference between the gig economy and what I'm talking about. And maybe it's a matter of spectrum. Maybe it's a matter of how high is the bar to get in. Um, I think that if I look at an existing model, something like bug bounty, I think that the bar today for a bug bounty hunter to sign up on one of the, you know, multiple uh, big bug bounty platforms, I think that's a pretty low bar. You know, I think my five-year-old daughter who knows how to use a computer could sign up and claim to be, quote unquote, an independent security researcher. You know, that particular model, which I think is kind of like the gig economy, doesn't actually require any sort of bar, doesn't require sort of any evaluation to be passed for individuals to participate in that group. Um, what I'm proposing actually requires a high bar. And this is what I think consultancies often do very well, is they have that high bar and they charge the prices that they do because of the high bar. I think that it's possible to have the high bar and not have the gate Uh, and not have that control. I think that those things, I think there's a future where it's possible for those to be separated. Mm. So why do you think that we all think that there is this shortage then? Is it because of this poaching that we're seeing people go from like a company to another company in a short matter of years? And it's like, oh, well, that's the only way, right? There's not anyone else to hire. So you have to go steal it. Is What what sort of do you feel like is contributing to this misperception that there's a shortage? Sure. So there 
The shortage story, I think, comes from the fact that if you're a company with a small security budget, maybe if you're a nonprofit, for for any reason, if you don't have sort of the influence to be able to attract and hire FTE security professionals for your internal team, if you don't have either the budget or the influence, or if you don't have the budget to work with one of these sort of high-end consulting firms, then you're sort of SOL. You know, what do you do in a case like that? You know, okay, so you op- you rely on some open source things and you 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 hire a generalist who can pick up a lot of things, you know, but I, I really think that part of it is an access problem because if you don't have brand and influence and money, then how are you supposed to get access to high quality security talent today? Mm. So I, I think it's deeply connected also in terms of producing talent. I mean, yeah, you can you can identify some level of aptitude for people entering the job market, right? But I don't think it's even fair or appropriate to assume that they need some set of skills. To, I mean, there's so many different types of security work we're doing. So I think in in large in, in a large number of cases. Dennis, when he goes and steals all the security talent, is trying to hire based on aptitude and then growing that talent so that he, you know, that 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 we're getting next level work out of that person within a short period of time. So the capability to grow talent, I think, is also part of the market, right? Yes, I totally agree with that. I think there is um, you take an individual who has raw talent you can give them skills. You can then evaluate those skills. I think each of the three of us also know folks who have... So So, what happens in reality? What happens is if you don't have a way to evaluate someone's technical security skills, then you rely on something like well, do you have such and such degree? You know, in this conversation, we're referring to, um, you know, looking to a pipeline of a particular university program, right? In lieu of having a different way to assess technical security skills, we say, what school did you go to? What mm-hmm. program did you finish? What certification do you hold? How many years of experience do you have in ABC? Right. And I would wonder out loud and to you if there are folks that each of the three of us know who've worked in this industry and on their resume, they have gone to great schools, went to really technical security programs. Like William and Mary and stuff like that. Maybe have five or 10 years of experience in, say, application security. And some of those folks may be very good and some of them may not. I think we also, each of us probably know someone who doesn't have a cert, maybe doesn't have a degree, maybe doesn't have on their official resume, I've worked in such and such industry for such and such number of years. And they happen to be phenomenally talented. And they happen to, by way of none of these formal checklisty pieces of paper that say what you do, actually be super good at technical security work. And I and I think we have an evaluation problem. I think we have mm-hmm. a an evaluation problem and a, um, you could call it, a certification problem. Uh, and this is not to 
this is not intended. I'm not intending to beat up on certifications. I think there's a value to certifications. And I think that we as an industry can get further. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. I think that you're talking about and what we're all talking about, right? It's about like, it's not just measuring the skills that you have, but your potential for like, excellence in those skill areas, right? In lieu of actual experience. So Kev, this is like, you know, I feel like number one, flashbacks from Shared Secrets episode number one, where Kev was talking about, hey, comp sci is not maybe the best best thing to show that you're going to succeed in application security. And then the other thing I'm just laughing about as you're saying all this stuff, Caroline, is like that meme that definitely seems to be going around LinkedIn the past few months where show me that you have 20 years experience in this tent technology that has only existed for 10 years, right? Right. Like everyone is sort of honing <laughs> in on this. And it's like, or, no, show me that you can, you know, apply critical thinking, right? That's I mean, so. to double down on that, Dennis, I've also seen the, you know, I don't know, it's probably just social media marketing or whatever, but demanding at the same time that somebody has industry background in the same industry, right? So I need a 20-year a veteran of cybersecurity to work for this candy company, <laughs> you know, or, or <laughs> must know everything candy. about must, yeah, must Willy Wonka. Candy experience, yeah, right, yeah. This Caroline was meant, she's highlighting the fact that Willy Wonka cannot hire now, any full-time security people because all the big firms are gobbling them up. <laughs> now I, I, I get to, to, to get two cents in here. Cause you guys both have fancy computer science degrees from fancy universities. And although I did go and get a, a degree later on, I was finishing my degree, Caroline, actually, when we met and we were in our, you know, mid to late 20s and already, you know, had had established careers. So what about your firsthand perspectives of, of, of entering the market? I, I think I actually kind of maybe in, in the example of, you know, I entered the market when I was 18 because I knew how to do some stuff and get some stuff done and was fairly affordable for, you know, dot com bubbles, bubble bursting companies to, to hire on to replace their, you know, $200,000 network engineer that they had to fire because they can't sell you know, drinks online or anymore or something like that. But, but maybe starting with Caroline, I mean, does that re how, how do you feel like when you entered the market? Um, what was, did, did that, did, did your degrees from, I mean, Berkeley is known to, to, especially at the time to have had one of the best computer science and you also went for electrical engineering, right? That's correct. I think it's a phenomenal comparison and actually a really great illustration for this point. Imagine it's the year, say it's 2005, and I am at an organization that needs some technical security work done. I'll tell you what, I sure as hell want Kevin Nassery doing that work and not Caroline Wong. Despite the fact that Caroline Wong has an electrical engineering degree with computer science from UC Berkeley, Kevin's better at technical security work. But how would I know that? I don't have a way to know that. And that's the problem. Hmm. Well, I'm uh, not going to disagree with, no. (laughs) I see the point in analogy. It's not the, yeah. But uh, I I mean, Dennis, same same boat for, for, or same question to you. Like you took a a more traditional path. You were, you know, as we've discussed, you were an amazing student and, uh, you know, went to Hogwarts (laughs) for high school. And then mm-hmm. later on, Hogwarts School for the Gifted for quality assurance work, I believe. So maybe you could talk about that. 
Yeah, no, I think, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I struggled despite, you know, having a computer science degree, getting a job right out of school. You know, I think from where William and Mary is in Southeast Virginia, our career fair, we're a liberal arts school. Our career fair brought a whole bunch of naval technology companies there. Like that's what, Hey, do you know how to do radar imaging or stuff like this? You know, things. Mm -hmm. So the only avenue for me you know, from school was through Accenture, which came down there. And I just, uh, <laughs> going to that hard. interview did not go uh, amazing as I was not a coffee drinker in college or post-college. And I just was like getting all amped up for this 8am interview. And I, I drove to a Starbucks and got, a, you know, I saw, oh, there's a can of a double shot of espresso. Yeah, this is great. This is exactly what I need. Actually, no, I need two of these. So having a non-coffee drinker go into the interview on four shots of espresso, I think they were just like, who invited this freak here? He's just sweating everywhere. Okay, so that did not go well. So I had to rely on good old nepotism to get my first job. <laughs> well, oh, it, it's, an, it's an amazing story, and it confirms we have like all three archetypes here, right? Uh, Caroline went to a good school got degrees and went and I, you know, she, she was a little, uh, I think, uh, humble, but was very quickly impactful on these, these businesses, um, you know, doing critical, I mean, strategic level work early on in her career. Dennis, you got the fancy degree, struggled a little bit and fell into security because as, as maybe a way or a door that got open to you, um, it sounds like you, you kind of wanted to, you were early on thinking you would be like in the developer space and kind of pivoted to security because it was a good door that got open to you. And, you know, me as a third archetype of like, I was trying to do computer security in, in high school and working and stuff like that. And, and kind of went back and, and got the degree to, as to not hold me back later. So I think all of those, those, those paths are valid. And we've, you know, I, at least you two have been super <laughs> successful in, in, in achieving good things in, in cybersecurity in the space. The question is, is there anything, to, or I guess the thing that I, I'm still reflecting on is how do we know we have enough people? I, I think I agree with Caroline that there's certain parts of the, the recruiting process that may be broken, the, the, the natural supply demand curve and how, how to attract talent might be, you know, disruptively or, or in favor of, of consulting business or something like that. But do we still know that, that if, if the people are there, we can find them, hire them and train them? I think that I want to respond first from the perspective of the organization that needs to do technical security work in order to appropriately manage their risk posture. Mm-hmm. From that perspective, I think we have enough security talent when an organization can invest a reasonable amount of money and get a reasonable amount of risk reduction because they actually have access to security talent when they need it. Mm. I think that from the perspective of the practitioner, the individual, the candidate, we will have we will be in a great place when that individual has the ability to get evaluated in a way that can say to the world, this individual has aptitude. 
this individual has critical thinking skills. Mm -hmm. This individual looks at a problem and approaches solving that problem in a way that we want and need from technical security folks. Um, I think it's possible. I know we're not there yet. I think it's possible we could get there in the next five to 10 years. Awesome. Yeah. I think like uh, Joel Scambery would always call it, you know, you keep as, you know, you're looking for this purple unicorn to hire, right? So we need to stop looking for specifically the people that are purple unicorns right now, right? And be a little bit broader and, and say who can grow into that, right? So I, I think recognizing the potential, yeah, there's definitely, if we can recognize the potential of people who can succeed in security, um, there are definitely enough enough people out there to meet the need. All right. We're we're going to close in on, on kind of the, the target uh, timeframe for the discussion. I think maybe before we do the rate review and fun part, let's maybe each person and I'll start. So you guys have a little bit of time, give hiring managers some piece of actionable guidance that they can take and maybe increase the amount of talent that they have access to. And I'll start and I'll, I'll kind of tag on to, uh, to, to one of the threads that we talked about in there. I don't think hiring based on years of experience makes any sense for people to do like, it, it doesn't tell you how many years of growth somebody had. It doesn't tell you what skills. Hire what you need skill set wise. You know, you can get a sense in the interview if they're going to be capable to impact the problems you're working on. But I would like to see like a complete elimination of, you know, that that thing Dennis was talking about a 20 years experience. I don't it doesn't matter to me. Right. Um, you know, in the first six months or year, however much time I have to get you ramped up on this problem. You know, after that, can you make an, an independent or, you know. A, a big impact on the problems I have. So that, that would be my piece of guidance. I'll, yeah. Who wants I, to go next? Go I will ahead, go next. I think the best question that, uh, that I have when I'm interviewing someone is just to ask them about what they like to do outside of work. Right. And then the, the best people that I've hired are talking about like, Oh, you know, I tinker with this or I'm, you know, I build this website on the side or whatever. And it's just like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like they, are doing something that's somewhat related that I'm trying to talk to them about here, but you know, I can see that passion there and, and it's extending outside of just what they're going to be doing nine to five. So I, I like that trying to see if there's like good indicators in what the person's passionate about, what that they, you know, what do they do and when they're not at work um, uh, just to see, you know, where their interest lies. So hire for passion. So I have, two categories of advice for hiring managers in cyber. Thing one is when you're writing your job description, you can't, as we've talked about, just say, I need a 20 year experience purple unicorn. You can't just do that and expect to have reasonable results. I think that, You've got to really understand for this particular role, what are you actually looking for? And that might encompass things like, what are other people doing because this role doesn't exist that this role should be doing? So those could be specific, defined actions. Um, I often get questions from security leaders at an earlier stage of maturity, maybe who are hiring their first one or two or five 
security team members. And I would say, talk to your peer. If you are the CTO, if you're the head of engineering, go talk to a peer of yours whose company is like one step further along than you in terms of security maturity and ask what their people actually do and Mm -hmm. how that team is actually structured. I think there's often a huge gap between what it says on a job description and what that person actually does day to day. And I think if a hiring manager can close that gap, I think that's the first thing that helps. The second thing that I recommend is to talk to candidates personally really early. I think that to be a hiring manager in cybersecurity, these folks have very busy jobs, very busy lives, lots of competing priorities, tons of fires are trying to put out, and they're also trying to do strategy and planning and organizational development, and it's just a lot of stuff. And so what happens often is that there's reliance on, I'm going to post this job description and just wait for the applicants to come in. Right. I don't think that's a good strategy. (laughs) I do think that it's worth your time, number one, to be thoughtful about what actually is this person going to do, and then number two, go out and do targeted outreach. When you have a handful of 30-minute conversations with folks that you think might be something like what you're looking for, it'll actually help you refine that job description. Um, and I think folks are, generally speaking, more willing to respond to a hiring manager who reaches out than to a recruiter. That's not to bag on recruiters. Um, I also think it's nice when somebody reaches out and it's in the, in the realm of reasonable. <laughs> um, so those are, those are a couple things. I think um, awesome. rethink how you're doing the job description, uh, rethink how you're doing outreach, consider doing more outreach earlier personally. Yeah. Don't rely on, on recruiting to solve your, your people problem. Yeah. yeah. It's just- awesome. Now, Caroline, I know we're all uh, friends and you're our first guest and we're supposed to be super nice to you, but it now comes the time for critical assessment of how you've convinced (laughs) Dennis Sheridan, which I've been in your shoes before. I know you're nervous. You should be nervous. I'm terrified. Dennis Dennis is the velociraptor of (laughs) rating. Totally. Dennis scares the shit out. I'll just put that out there. So I'm going to go first. I'm going to be, you know, nice. I, I think seven. I think that you've definitely convinced me that on a microeconomic perspective, meaning as an individual hiring manager, I can still, if I do the right things, get good people, grow them into what I need to do and and do it. I just have to rethink. And you gave great advice to, to me to do that. I don't know if at a macroeconomic supply and demand, if there's enough people in pipeline to do all the jobs we may have. And we didn't even tackle that as part of the discussion. So that's where I'm, I'm settling in at, what did I say? Seven? Seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, yeah, I say 7.5. This is like for the same reason as Kevin, but you know, I had not really thought about this before. So I loved this topic. Um, I do think, yeah, we're talking about how to fill that pipeline. 
like you were mentioning, Caroline, five to 10 years, I think, you know, the method of discovering and, and like you mentioned, like, okay, hey, what's just a great way to identify the potential of someone to fill this stuff? So, uh, yeah, 7.5, because it definitely, you know, made me think differently about this topic. Cool. Okay. Now it's going to take me about 20 seconds to open the vault that Arthur Anderson got in a time machine, brought to me, contains Caroline's self-assessment. And to repeat, because Dennis always forgets, I only repeat this for Dennis. Caroline, before this interview, self-assessed how much she believes this to be true. Mm -hmm. Ah, yes. All right. Two to the left, one to the right, two to the left. Okay, I have it. I'm opening the envelope. 9.75. So pretty good. Pretty, I mean, obviously something you're very passionate about, you believe in. And and I think sevens, I mean, compared to, I mean, a gap of less than than two. And I mean, typically, what have I been averaging, uh, Dennis? (laughs) Oh, man, we've had, yeah, something bad. I would also say that this makes... like five on you. You're pretty hard on you, so... Awesome uh, job! Yes, this this officially makes Caroline the most confident person that has the been most on. successful. And we already knew based on her very successful personal podcast, which you heard about earlier on her intro, uh, that she was better at this than us. So <laughs> thankful that we could glom onto her and, uh, and knock out the secret, Caroline. Thanks so much. This was awesome. My absolute pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you so much. This was so much fun. All right. Thanks again to Caroline. On this week's throwback episode, we're going to talk to a good friend of mine, and we're going to kind of pick up and resume those uh, throwback Quincy stories about the early uh, internet service provider, um, both uh, Basic Communications Limited, which was our hometown ISP in Quincy, Illinois, from uh, the early 90s to about 1997. And then uh, Ben and I going to work at uh, Carolyn Supernet Incorporated, KSNI.net, if you want to try to do some uh, background research and, and investigate. Um, those are the two ISPs. So we kind of cover both of those stories. Uh, as well as uh, some some other lessons learned. So um, I know Ben as I kind of get into the episode um, from from both high school and and uh, and tennis, as well as the kind of early computer days. And uh, in later life, Ben has gone on and uh, used some of the skills that that uh, um, we talk about in the episode as a, as an impact to to his career, which which uh, Ben has done uh, extensive uh, data engineering, uh, big data technical project management around uh, data assets uh, at firms like uh, cars.com, Uptake, as well as most recently, he is the director of uh, data engineering for Driven. So uh, super cool to, to see Ben have those uh, those successes, but uh, we're going to talk about uh, some of Ben and, and my uh, uh, early lessons learned uh, here in this throwback episode. So uh, thanks so much for giving it a listen. Bye. All right, Ben, it has been too long, my friend. Yeah, yeah, it's been whew, years. I don't, I don't even know the last time we chatted, probably five years at least. Um, well, I saw you at Merck's wedding uh, last oh, year. Oh, that's, so, that's right, yeah. So that would be uh, by far the the, fir- the last time we talked. But before that, it would probably have been, yeah, 10 or 15 years, probably since the um, we, we worked together a couple times in life, coincidentally. But um, 
let let's dive into to us as kids. My uh, so I think we met playing tennis. Do you think that that's true? Uh, no, we actually met at the uh, before that. We met at the ISP um, one night before we joined on tennis team. Well, but you played tennis at the racket club, and I think you took lessons. Oh yeah, maybe with maybe me at the racket club. Yeah, yeah, it would have it would have all been right at the same time. I met you. At the yeah, it's club that's and- that's kind of the funny thing is there's this triangle here of I mean neither of us are uh, what I would consider. Well, you're you're actually a pretty solid athlete. You're a good swimmer and stuff like that. But <laughs> it's <laughs> funny that that the two of us uh, maybe met playing tennis. Um, but then this other world kind of intersected, right? So we had you know we we knew of each other, and then. I don't really remember it too much in school. In high school, we definitely hung out a lot more um, and we're, we're good friends. But in earlier, I, I think I probably met you when I was in seventh grade. You were in eighth grade, maybe playing tennis. And then when I was in eighth grade, you were in ninth grade is when I think we realized this other connection, which was um, this internet service provider. And the way I think that works is you were like, a very um uh passionate um like fantasy gamer and and those type, like those card games and i think people at the uh ISP that was one of their hobbies as well so they played um so you know like magic the gathering and highlander card games is is that how you met them or was there another connection even beyond that no that's how i met them i i started playing dungeons and dragons and um had a big uh, we called it gaming guild and we we met weekly and one of the members of gaming guild um was a was one of the sysadmins at the the first ISP. and cut, you're talking about cutter or somebody yeah. else okay uh, yes i cutter i'll use i'll use that handle as a sure. name that's to not disparage anybody oh yeah. maybe we could even get him on uh but um so so that's how you became friends um, with the whole crew, right? So, uh, including the owner was, uh, I remember he, at one point he was maybe like the world champion, <laughs> uh, Highlander <laughs> card game player or something like that. Um, yeah. Well, I was also, I, I was ranked definitely top 10 in, in a, in that game. And yeah, we played a lot of games though, but, and, gotcha. and my, and, and really gaming is what led my computer interests. Yeah. Time. Yeah. So you, you were, you got drug into this world as, as kind of a, a, that part of the network. And then we bumped into each other because I was like really trying to get my foot in the door and the, the Quincy user group for internet had this offshoot special interest group for Perl programming and unix that was hosted once a month at the isp and i i do remember very one specific one specific night that my mom dropped me off because it was like the it was like on every third wednesday of the month but somehow that thing had gotten canceled because you guys were playing cards and i was just like stuck there (laughs) and then like tom drove me home as a favor like later on so like my mom didn't have to come back or something like that so yeah we were actually um, hosting a ranked tournament i believe (laughs) okay yeah so i just hung around and and watched you guys play games and eventually somebody gave me a ride home um but uh yeah no and then really fun to connect together and i i and then the other part oh so let me get into this like uh what i think one of your computers was oh it's Oh, go ahead. No, go for it. 
So shortly after that time, or maybe maybe a decent amount after, maybe a couple of years, because we, we definitely were friends at this point, um, you may have been like frustrated with some, maybe it was Diablo 2 or you or something like that, but you kind of called me up and you were like, hey, Kevin, can you help me install Linux on this? It was a very nice Dell, probably Pentium 2, 233. Three, uh, or or two sixty six with the, one of those nice Sony Trinitron monitors, real nice setup. And you were like done with games, wanted to get more passionate about computers and Linux. So I think that you came over to my house, but even with ISDN, it was too slow. So then we drove to BCL and we used their network to do a network install and got your system set up and you named that system ender.bcl.net what do you think yeah, that's that sounds right i'm pretty sure it was a 233 and that would have been my second computer um, okay i actually got on the isp on a 486 sx that we bought at comp usa in like 1993 Oh, and, another um, another Comp USA mention. That that came up in another podcast too. So yeah, and um, that's actually the first time I was online was on that computer. I would have been on Prodigy um, in like '93 through '94, '95 when I finally ran into the ISP folks. Awesome. Okay, yeah. So you had you had some experience there, and um, any stories from the BCL days that that you thought were you wanted to share or. You know, we can we can kind of pick because most of the time we spent together was at KSNI, which was the second ISP after BCL. We both worked for that internet service provider, um, so th that's where we spent a lot of time together. But uh, what any any BCL stories before we we jump into the KSNI days? Well, I think you know uh, the start of my career bringing down mail servers happened at BCL um, on on Monolith playing uh, chess, and on the next machine that was a thirty three megahertz Pentium. And, but the, the chess program would just eat every single ounce of CPU that thing had. <laughs> so okay. I, I was playing it one day and brought down the mail server. Um, that, that was good. This, is, this, this touches on a couple of threads that have been pulled on before. Um, so two of the primary servers um, that were operating the ISP, it was kind of like a menagerie of these eccentric, not eccentric even at the time, commercial Unix workstations. Mm -hmm. um, were were kind of hard to come by and Linux hadn't yet at the time really reached a popularity or stability and, and uh, maybe production readiness. So two of the very integral servers there were a, two next step turbo color slabs and not to one up you, they were not Pentiums at all. They were 33 megahertz, but they were M60AK Motorola 68,000 risk processors. That's right. They were risks. Yeah. yeah. So they were very eccentric. No, I mean, it's, it, they were just cool. Um, and they ran this beautiful by, by the time, you know, even being four or five years old at the time, which made them somewhat ancient for computing power. 
the graphical interface was really the inspiration for OS 10 and, sure. and quite beautiful. But so you, you would log into that, those systems. And then they had all these like cute little games, like you could play doom, you know, they had a, a doom compiler, they had risk, I think. Yeah. And then there was a chess program. And apparently the, uh, the, the chess engine that was running to power the, the chess um, was uh, pretty catastrophic to the other duties. The mail server was supposed to be providing. And the the wrist game was also and and um, they actually time limited those access to those programs after I uh, had a couple of days there. <laughs> awesome, awesome! I also brought down the mail server once uh, on accident, so uh, we'll probably get into that story. That was a, a Trent and Kev accident story, so we'll, yeah. we'll bring that up on the next. But one. yeah, I mean, the only other thing I, I definitely remember the shell hack games that we played back then. I mean, everyone was just on these machines. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it wasn't really malicious and I, I wasn't really good enough yet. I, I was just starting to even learn shell and stuff and had you install Linux a year later, two years later or something. Um, but I remember I would, I would, uh, I would leave Easter eggs, uh, for people, a lot of my shell accounts. Cause I knew that people were getting in them and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and so I, I remember that I would play a counter Intel game. I'd leave Easter eggs and then see, try and get people to bring them up in conversation. And then I'd know if they were in my shell or not. Yeah. I remember one guy on the, uh, on that same shell server, similar story. He had a little program in his home directory that said like run me dot sh. And it, when you ran it, it would say, it would just like output like, Oh, you silly rabbit or something like that. But it would copy that user's shell to a set UID version of it and then revoke the uh, ability to delete <laughs> to right. delete it, like all kind of been out. So you had to like look and see what was going on. And, it, you know, if you accidentally ran it, I guess, call call our friend Greg to delete it, who was the uh, the system administrator for for those systems. So, um, yeah, that was really fun. Um, OK, so. A couple years go by, I mean, as we're getting into 1997, um, the ISP is sold to a, a larger company. And Do you want to know uh, the name of it? Because I'm pretty sure I remember. It's Access um, US. Access, yeah, that's it. And then they, yeah. I think they got bought by EarthNet also. I think they got bought by Savis or something like that, but you know, it it was a St. Louis based, um, you know, larger scale ISP. So, and we're talking about, you know, BCL had, you know, a T1 and it's heyday, you know, 1.544 megabit per second. And, you know, the, the scale of this other larger ISP is they probably had a single DS3 to somebody or something like that. Yeah. Um, Sounds about right. You know, so it's it's all scaled and relative. But what happened is they started kind of dismantling um, at, at least the office space, right? And mm-hmm. in fact, some of the jobs and, and you know people people moved on and and but you know there was this local business mogul who you know really liked having um, you know this access, this relationship, or something like that with with a local service provider. He's a very, you know, eccentric guy. We could, we could have a whole, we probably should have a whole podcast just about uh, him and, and, and all this stuff. But um, that, that guy and uh, Tom, um, you know, kind of partnered together in, in some way. I'm not exactly sure. Hopefully we can have Tom on soon to talk about what the nature of, of why they work together on this. But they started a new local internet service provider. Um, but 
you know, our friends that had worked there had all kind of moved on or, or had other positions ready for them well, in some way. Yeah, Go ahead. Yeah. The majority of them either went to college or got jobs in the industry and had moved, moved on. Yeah. But it was like this, this shift happened all at the same time where everyone also yeah. left and they had to bring in new, new people. So, well, and, and yeah, so I, I remember, I, I, I think that we were sophomores in high school and you and I used to go uh, after school to hang out with another buddy of ours at Applebee's. Like this was a semi-weekly occurrence that we would go and like get iced teas at Applebee's and just kill time there. Right. Um, and one day we saw Tom in there and I don't know if he was waiting for us or what, but I remember sitting down at that table and, you know, I knew Tom, it wasn't anything, you know, weird or anything, but at some point he kind of offered um, me this like opportunity to help start this you and i both yeah, help both start this yeah help mm-hmm. start this isp so i would be doing some of the or the some of the system administration because they had also tom and our buddy greg who were you know i think originally going to help run this thing or something but they had gotten um great jobs in uh columbia missouri uh tom for for Zyland, greg with the university of columbia so they they needed a physical presence in Quincy and, you know, right place, right time. Although even at the beginning, it wasn't even a paid position. I was just excited to like volunteer and help and, and run this stuff. And then later on, uh, we got paid. So you were kind of do it working on tech support stuff with, with cus- more customer focus. Although I had to do some of that and, mm-hmm. um, you, you definitely helped out on, on some of the server stuff in terms of, of, you know, what, whatever was going on at the time, you know, being pitching in there. Um, but this, uh, it, it was like, and then they, the stretch, so they had us and I think we, we really provided the core continuity. I think we were the people that stayed there the longest and then they would rotate in a random combination of adults and other kids right. <laughs> that, yeah. that, that it was like kind of just a time, you know, yeah. how long could this person last and the last in the insanity of this place that was yeah, ostensibly it, run by run by children? Yeah, <laughs> um, right. yeah it, um, it was it was pretty raw. I mean, you know, Tom just got a hold of us and I remember we went over there and it's just like two empty racks and a couple of computers. <laughs> and then like it, couple- it was it was literally a abandoned Kmart. Yes. So, <laughs> so the, this Kmart had had you know moved across town in the in the early '80s or something. I don't. I never remember going to a Kmart there. And then, um, you, you know, this company that that uh, uh, the owner of the ISP that I had mentioned, the eccentric guy, his his family business um, had, had owned the building. Owned oh, the and, building uh, that was and uh, the other abandoned. yeah the yeah. the other nine tenths of this little space that we had were storage for their business and we had this little corner of this Kmart that had been walled off <laughs> and that was our internet service provider yeah and i remember um you were definitely there those those early night we pulled a couple all nighters cuz you know tom had two jobs and and greg had two jobs they would come back in town on a weekend and we'd pull an all nighter to try to get things set up and ready um so we could go into business right so um, yeah and those were nervous days. That's definitely my first recollection. I, I helped install one of the modem racks, and um, you know, it was a series of of planes with like 
you know, eight modem cards per plane. And those modem cards are like those boxes yep. cost like twenty thousand dollars each or something like that. Yeah, know? they. If people if people are super into the retro vintage computing stuff, these were originally Livingston Portmaster threes. And I only say originally because they were we always use Portmaster threes, but they were bought by Lucent halfway through. So and we kind of scaled up. You know, we looked at the number of of subscribers we had and basically tried to to maintain some type of ratio. Right. Like four to one was like the objective. So anytime, you know, every time we had and and they took you're right, they actually so they they accepted two uh, digital you know, basically ISDN PRI lines. So each one of those had, oh man, it's actually 20, I think 26 channels. Um, and man, my memory, like usually I have a pretty good memory about the 80s, but I think <laughs> each each T1 has essentially tw- uh, 26 channels that each channel could be like one modem call. Right. And they... And and then they also have associated with it hardware or software, you know, uh, embedded modem cards. So if somebody called in with ISDN, it could just talk directly to it via its ISDN controller. But if somebody dialed in on one of those digital lines, it required and and the, those devices actually had I think forty eight modems because it was like hamburger buns and and hamburger or hot dog buns and and hot dogs of of how like man, uh, why do I get 10 buns and eight hot dogs. Right. It, it was the same thing. So we had 48 and you, you mentioned like being scared of, of doing something. Yeah. The scariest job in that ISP ever was upgrading the firmware on those modem cards. Cause this was, <laughs> this was a dangerous time for modem firmware. And this brings up a, a, a the horror story. I remember we went, you, you know, uh, us robotics had in- introduced the 56 K standard. And then, uh, you know, as a competitor to that, I'm not sure who introduced it, but, um, you know, the idea of V.90. And we're always, we're just trying to get up to that, like really getting 33.6 kilobit per second um, out of these modems. And what happened in our user population then, right, is that all of the all of our thousands of customers at one point, maybe a year or two into this thing, not all of their their phone lines were were clear enough to kind of support those newer protocols, and we ended up causing a ton a ton of uh, instability. And I remember you and I making. I mean, there was just like a month there where every day after school we were driving well, around. Uh, yeah. oh, that was a nightmare. Hundreds of of in home tech support calls, and I mean, it, that wasn't the only scary thing. We'd have to go to these people's houses and do these upgrades and like install these modems, yeah, on their, on their Windows ninety five or the three point well, one machines, and it, that was a nightmare. Also, maybe that, yeah, maybe they fixed their got a new modem or something like that, or maybe we had to go there and like futz with their their um their dialer to add some like haze modem commands to disable going v.90 and then get in an argument with them be like why am i not getting the 33.6 you promised me and all that stuff but house calls i think you and me uh, or am i I, that was the least that was my least favorite thing to do but i do remember that a couple of the guys like merc later on or whatever love doing house calls because they would just disappear all afternoon and be like oh that house call took a really long time (laughs) yeah but 
but for me, house calls were a nightmare. I was just uncomfortable going in there. And then, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was very, times. it was a very odd, odd time. I mean, I went on to deliver pizzas, but at least when you're delivering pizzas, you stop at the door, you know? So. And, yeah. And yeah. Once again, you know, it wouldn't, I don't know. It, it didn't happen that often, but we'd brick a customer's machine. Uh, you know, the driver would install, right. And you brick their machine and that's a whole nother level of trouble. Oh so. my God. Yeah. I remember a couple, couple of days, somebody come in and just be lugging a, a computer, computer back to the office so that we could use like good internet to try to fix it or whatever. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, and, and also, you know, the, the, the V.90, um, the, the firmware bugs on the, on the actual um terminal servers too there was a couple of rounds of having to get that right um so yep. yeah a real nightmare of technology uh for for the modem days to to kind of have to deal with that that shift yep. to uh those v.90 stuff so um what what were the other uh either challenges that you remember or other things going on in your life, good times, bad times. What, what other stuff did you want to talk about for, for getting into the KS night is? Oh, uh, you know, I, I think it is, you know, we were talking about, if you want to talk a little bit about information, information security, you know, I, I still find it amazing that we were kids and at those days in the ISP, I mean, if, if you were an ISP, you had access to everything. Um, you could read all all of any email you wanted. Like we had no privacy governance or anything like that. And but at the same time, it was kind of offset by the fact that there wasn't a whole lot of important information online either. Like people weren't using they they weren't doing banking through their email and stuff like that, right? So it, it was wild west, and we had unlimited access. But it was also a time when you know. The, the, the information that you had is stuff that people like automatically send to social media now. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and I should, I should say, I mean, it's not to make it sound like we were reading people email. I don't remember anybody, you know, like ever reading anybody's mail school file no, no, while, but we, while I was around. Yeah. No, but we could. Right. Yeah, like, exactly. We the, had the idea. complete access <laughs> at 16 years old to yeah. everybody's info. Um, it was, it was pretty, it was an interesting time. So. Yeah, very very weird time. Um, you know, maybe on the on the security side of things too. Wanted to to connect with you. I for me, I think if you were going to look at this, the single most important day of my career that influenced me going into security, it was the day that that ISP got hacked. Yeah. Um, yep. So what was, well, maybe you tell me your memory of, of what it is and I can try to fill in because actually the, I, I don't remember a ton of detail. We probably get through the story pretty quick, yeah. but it, it just, it's impact on me later on. You know, I, I learned some, some real lessons. So, but do you want to tell me what you remember? Yeah, sure. And it had lessons for me too. Um, I, I mean, the way I remember it, it was like all of the most egregious outages I remember, which is like 2 PM on a Tuesday. And the office was just completely silent. Um, you know, like the phones weren't going off. I'm just having a good time. <laughs> I think it was a Friday. <laughs> it might have been a Friday, but it, the yeah. office was really quiet. It, it was a very quiet time. And um, and then out of nowhere, and I don't know why, if, you know, you had noticed some load going up or for whatever reason, but you kind of freaked out. And, you know, I, I came to look over your shoulder and 
um, you, you identified that, you know, somebody was logged in, was in a terminal that wasn't one of us. And, you know, back then, you know, we're in these shells. We know everybody who has a shell, like basically personally, um, that has a shell account. Um, you know, and, and that's always funny. It's like, I, I think about this today, but imagine logging into like an AWS ECS cluster and, and doing a slash who, or, or, you know, doing a who on the system, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that, it's, it's just not possible, but you know, it was so personal back then. And I mean, you were face to face with this guy, you know, and I, I remember that. And, um, I remember shortly after, I think you were trying to kick him out. Um, but he had, uh, uh, a route back in or whatever. And, and his end result was he started to do a, a rude RM RF, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty sure. And at that point, you kind of screamed. I think your, your shell command stopped working and you ran over the server and you actually physically pulled the plug out of it. Um, I try to remember if it was our mail server because um, I don't think he got radius, but um, mm. it was the I, I, whatever server it was. Um, as I recall, I think you saved the data on it because the, the remove command hadn't gotten to the user directory, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, you and I also played chess together. That was another way that, especially in high school and I've, maybe you even got me into chess, which I, I still try to play pretty actively today. Um, but we were playing team chess together and, and bridal other podcast, best Rob bridal. And I don't know if it was Joe Gianetti or, or who else was around, but we had a four person chess game going and I don't, I think I was in eyesight of uh, one of the, uh, the systems that was running X windows mm-hmm. and it logged out. It logged like out. I, That's right. Yeah. You, yeah. So I saw the X, uh, basically it flashed back to the XDM screen and I just kind of started investigating. I ran, I, it was super weird. So I, I walked over and started investigating that. And then very quickly, it was apparent that there was other stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the couple of things I remember is I was on Stan, which was the primary mail server, looking at the shell and checking things out. And I actually got, I mean, the reason that I knew it was a compromise, the first, I mean, I was like, he sent me a message. That's right. <laughs> like, and I very distinctly remember it said, ahoy, exclamation point. And I should say, like, I, I there's a 50 50 chance that we actually know the person. <laughs> and, like, right. but we, we never were able to do enough. I mean, we never, I don't even think we attempted to do forensics enough to, to figure it out. So we don't, like, I don't know who it was, but there is a 50% chance that we probably know the person who it was or not, or it could just have been internet. But, they did compromise radius and uh, a whole bunch of stuff and the security, you know, I was going to say like the key takeaways for me is like the way that they got in was through the, uh, was through a vulnerability in the RPC port mapper that we were using to support NFS file systems. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a, it's a low budget ISP scrounging around trying to make stuff work um i had at some point had to export disk space from one system to another <laughs> in order to um basically you know support that the 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 disk requirements we had some ver- some systems that relied on very expensive scuzzy drives and um we just couldn't 
afford or we didn't buy or whatever the reason was, but as a temporary solution until we could do that, I had exported disk space from one system to another. And that gave the attacker the initial foothold was through an RP, a, a bug in the RPC port mapper. Um, so they were able to, to get a foothold on that. And you're right that we didn't end up losing data because I, I don't know. I, I don't think it was because I was fast enough to unplug the system. I think I probably unplugged the network cable, at least initially. Maybe I also unplugged the system. Not sure. But I think the way that Linux worked at the time, when they did that RM-RF, it removed files in alphabetical order. Right. And I, I think once it hit the dev tree, the device tree for the system, and removed the uh, device file for the IDE Tappy drive or the SCSI drive, whatever it be the case, I think that kernel <laughs> panicked the system and retained the more important directories, which were called, you know, slash users, slash, or slash users with an E yeah. at the end. So the home directories and the mail spools. Yeah. And then it was, you know, a, a, we were just down and we had to do a serious amount of, of work um, in order to start to recover. And I remember making the call to our friends, Tom and Greg, who were in Columbia, Missouri, which is a three-hour drive, two or three-hour drive from Quincy, and kind of calling in the backup and also just like that feeling of like, man, we are not only are, but just like being kind of disappointed in, in myself and and all sorts of things. But Yeah, which I think is fun, funny in hindsight considering the, I mean, you'd have daily zero days back then, you know, it was I, only through obscurity that people well <laughs> no I, I, I to me it was it, there was a, a big compounding lesson there but that gotcha. that kind of kicked it on like that was the moment at which i became kevin the security guy right because from then on out i didn't want to repeat those mistakes yeah. so we really locked things down in in the weekend recovery the other complexity is i think we worked friday night most of the day saturday or something like that but at some point i had to i had some like school commitment i don't know what it was but i had to leave and and you know greg and tom continued the reinstallation process and doing some analysis and stuff like that. So yeah. I actually felt bad again about having to step away in the, in hindsight, I would have just stayed there and done it because none of that stuff was, was as important at the time as, as what I was my interest and passion in this, Yeah, but really started to lock things down from, from there, like using auto art, very minimal package installs, auto RPM. We implemented some uh, basic, uh, access control lists on the the routers for stuff that we didn't anticipate people remotely using, like NFS and later on SQL and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So some basic packet filtering there and really upped our game. And that set me on that path later on where that was just part of, for me, it was part of good systems administration. Yeah. And, um, you know, that that's a theme that I wish, that's a story that I wish every sysadmin had, every network admin had, because it was so powerful and maybe it is just because of how young we were at the time. But, but later on, I, I, you know, was in situations where something would happen to somebody and they would just be like, well, I'm a, I'm a sysadmin, not a security guy. This is your problem. You know, not taking accountability over part of the job. And I know, you know, let's, let's, let's close this off with talking about your career since then in terms of like, you've gotten into various and, and various progressive kind of technology 
roles. And, and I, I suspect the same is probably true. I mean, you're thinking about security and those things as well, but maybe. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I can tell you real quick to wrap up that story. One thing that had a lasting impact on me, you know, I'm on the customer support, more operations side. And mm-hmm. um, uh, you were on the phone with Tom and he had you hand the phone to me. And Tom said, you know, you need to get people out of there. Don't tell anybody what happened until we find out what happened. And you need to let our customers know as best as possible that, that we're down without giving away the goose. Right. Like, and, and that's, um, it, it kind of, it, it led me on to, you know, operational procedure and, and how important that is. Like, I, Oh yeah. You know, and, um, it, that made a lasting impact to me. And it's kind of funny cause I came up with this, this story. I mean, I don't know if we eventually released it, but you know, I kept saying that our, our, our provider connection was down is what I was telling everybody. And, um, and then I distinctly remember like two weeks later, we actually lost our provider connection and all the <laughs> same, all the same people are on the phone with me and I'm giving them the same story. Only this time it was true. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. And you know, uh, after, after that, I, I did go to college. Um, I've got a funny college story, but yeah, you know, um, one of the things I, I went to ISU and I got put in, uh, I went for a computational physics. I got put in the engineering dorm, which was a bit higher level, but they had just had installed, um, hundred meg ethernet, right. Which was just mm-hmm. m- mind blowing to me back then. But, um, and I'll, I'll never forget this for some reason. Um, you know, I, I wasn't a, I wasn't super programmer heavy. I, I, I knew enough, but I knew some tricks. And for some reason I got out Wireshark. Um, or whatever nice. the, the equivalent of it was at the time. And uh-huh. I found out this brand new network they put in was completely like hubbed. Like I could see every bit of, of information uh-huh. you know, yep. going across this network. And I remember I plugged it in once and I was like, I felt like Batman in the dark night. Like this is too, <laughs> this is too powerful for anyone um, yep. to, to yep. handle. They did end up fixing that network shortly after and got it mm-hmm. switched and encrypted or whatever, but. Um, that, that was pretty funny. Yeah. I, um, I actually ended up, uh, finishing, uh, with a degree in criminal justice. Um, oh, and, okay. and, um, but always kept the, the tech tight. Um, today I'm in, in data and I yeah. lead, lead a de- data development, uh, department, um, in a data science wing for a, uh, for a, uh, business to business company. And yeah, which which I actually think is a is a super unexplored area of a security or in terms of like parsers are by far one of the most complicated technical pieces of things to get right with regard to security vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And they're always treated as kind of like the gooey center of the Tootsie Roll. Like, okay, well, we're B2B. We're going to have a VPN tunnel to this and we're going to... S, you know, SFTP, the data and stuff, but they, nobody ever looks at the data as an attack vector itself. And I, I think there's a lot of, of, of unexplored and uh, a lot of issues that, that happen by just not being cognizant of untrusted input in those situations too. Oh yeah. 100%. I mean, it, it is, like you said, nice being in the B2B space um, mm-hmm. since, you know, my data governance, like I don't have a whole lot of privacy I have to worry about because all anything we have like email addresses, they're part of business contracts, right? So mm-hmm. we, we basically have a right to, to get that data and store it. Um, but every single new data source I personally look, look at, and if I see names, emails or whatever, like I'm like, mm-hmm. is it in the contract? We can have this, you know, just to double check. Um, and really, 
yeah, on the data side, and that's where you look, and I, I've been thinking about this for a while, is like information security is, is tying more and more into data governance and mm-hmm. actually even being aware of what's in your data flows. Um, yeah. And, and so, yeah, but I keep it on my side. You know, every time also being in, on the data side, we'll get requests, you know, from marketing and they're like, you know, give us, you know, 50,000 customer transactions. And I'm like, wait a second, where's this going? You know, like um, <laughs> many, many a conversation like that over the years. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, it, huge, huge impact those early years. Um, and, you know, both from understanding the technology and like the underlying tech, um, you know, it, unless you're specifically in networking today, like very few people on my team, you know, ever punched down two pair of copper, let alone got into Cisco's or anything, right? It, it's just so much more specialized. Um, but, you know, the lessons of troubleshooting that um, and, and business operations and, and procedure. Yeah, it, it's all it's all tied together. Very formative. Well, if there's is there the second most important lesson I ever learned is when you're punching down something, really make sure you know what side that cutter's on. Because I have cut a lot of important cables way too short by having Matt punch down tool flipped over. So it's like yeah. the uh, the the nightmare of uh, of telecom. So all right, Ben, thanks so much. We, we've we've definitely got to connect again and and take this stage because we've got a whole nother job that you and I work together that we haven't even talked about yet. So. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, that'll be great. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for making time. This was this was great to reconnect. Great. Thanks, Kevin. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye.